Isaiah chapter 7, beginning at verse 13, page 1070. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. And now chapter 8, the first four verses. The Lord said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. And I will call in Uriah the priest and Zechariah son of Jeberechiah as reliable witnesses for me. Then I went to the prophetess. And she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, Name him Mahar Shalahashbaz. Before the boy knows how to say my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. And now across the page, verse 18. Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel. From the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. The word of the Lord. O Lord, help me, your unprofitable servant, to make complex things simple and practical and compelling and a blessing. For Jesus' sake, amen. Turn with me, if you will, to over to the New Testament to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And you will find this on page 1887. Page 1887. And look at verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. So I want to welcome the angels who are here this morning uh, and bless you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That seem odd. What is 1 Peter telling us? 1 Peter is telling us that the Old Testament prophets did not always understand what they were prophesying about. 1 Peter is telling us that even, say, David, for example, understood certain things, but he didn't understand everything. 
And those things began to be revealed with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to ask you a question. I hope you read the Psalms. I read through the Psalms in English twice a year because the Psalms speak to me about my life circumstances. When I see David suffering, I can really identify with it. I'd say, wow, Lord, yes, that's true. Oh, Lord, wow, I understand. You understand because you inspired King David to write this psalm. And this sounds just like what I'm going through now. Have you ever had that sense of feeling as you read the psalms? that, Wow, this man's going through things here that I'm going through now. And you know, as I read the psalms, Sometimes it dawns on me away. I say, wait a minute. This isn't my experience. This is David's experience. And then I realize something else. Some of those Psalms are only about the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he says here. Uh, there he says uh, in verse 11 of 1 Peter 1, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointed when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Take Psalm 22. Psalm 22 There is nothing that I know of in the life of David comparable to that, except perhaps when his men were going to stone him, uh, when their wives and children were carted off, or when King Saul was aiming to kill him. I read Psalm 22, and it's very obvious as I read Psalm 22, which begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You ever feel that way in life with sufferings? When you're having trouble making your bills be paid, when you're having trouble with a spouse or parent or uh, children or your employer or your employee, you ever feel that way? Say, God, where are you? Why have you abandoned me now? Wow, David felt that way. But yet, when you read Psalm 22, things like, they cast lots for my garment. Uh, They divided my clothes among them. Uh, They pierced my hands and my feet. They gave me vinegar to drink, another psalm. All these things. You say, wow, this psalm isn't really about David at all. It's about the Lord Jesus. So as you read the psalms, let me give you what for me is the way to read the psalms. When I read a psalm, I try to understand the human author and what he was going through at that time. David didn't write all the psalms. You know, Moses wrote a psalm. Moses wrote the 90th psalm. And some people read the 90th psalm as, well, the Lord's promised me 70 years and maybe I'll make it to 80. Well, I'm counting on going to 95. I want to be active till I'm 95. And uh, they fail to understand the circumstances of Psalm 90. Moses wrote Psalm 90 when he's in the wilderness, when he's leading the children of Israel who had rebelled against God. And God said, all you adults are going to die in the desert and your children are are going to be the ones that go into the promised land. And so he's looking around and he's seeing, man, that guy died young. He was only 70 years old. And that guy made it to 80. In other words... The year, days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength, strength they be fourscore, yet it's labor and toil. Put it in its context, Moses is looking around and saying, Oh God, you're wiping out all these people I led out of Egypt, all the adults, and their children are the ones who are going to go into the promised land. 
So it's not a promise from God that you're going to make it to 70. Thank the Lord. Uh, I, I'm turning 75. And if by reason of strength, maybe I'm going to make it to 95. If I can still be active and still have my mind and still do pastoral work, I'd like to make it to 95. This is not about a promise of long life for you and me. It's, it's a reflection of God's judgment on the children of Israel in their wilderness wanderings for 40 years because they disobeyed God. See, it helps to know the context in the life of the writer of the psalm. So you look at David and you can see many things. And uh, you're reading it and then all of a sudden you come to Psalm 22, which is a psalm of David, and you say, wait a minute, this can't possibly be just about David. In fact, probably the vast bulk of Psalm 22 isn't about David at all. That's a clear example of David when he penned the words, not fully understanding what he was writing. Notice again in, in 1 Peter 1.11, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories would follow. Notice the Holy Spirit is called something there. And that is when the Lord Jesus died on the cross and was buried and then rose again from the dead, he received the Holy Spirit as his Holy Spirit that he poured out on the people of God on the day of Pentecost uh, after he had ascended to heaven for 10 days, had been up there for 10 days. In other words, the Holy Spirit is equal to the Father, equal to the Son, and is a real person. But in the function that each person in the Holy Trinity takes, the Holy Spirit submits himself to the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And in a very particular way after Jesus' resurrection, as the Spirit of Christ. And so the Spirit of Christ is inspiring David in Psalm 22 to write about the Lord Jesus. Wow. And you read other psalms as you read them, and you see, well, sort of, you know, this is about David, and there's some things in here that are said to be about Christ. So how do I read the psalms? I try to understand what is the context of this psalm. And then I think about how it applied to the human author. And then I realize that the entire Bible is a Christian Bible. The entire Bible is a Christian Bible. The whole of the first five books of Moses, the Torah, is ultimately about Christ. So are the prophets. So are the poetic books. In other words, there is not a single solitary passage in the entire Old Testament that Jewish people call the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Katavim. There's not a single solitary passage in the Old Testament that one way or another you can't preach the Lord Jesus Christ from. And if you can't preach the Lord Jesus Christ from it, as a preacher, you haven't studied enough. So all of Scripture is Christian Scripture. And as you read the Psalms, you say, you know, there are things here that go beyond the life of David. And who do they point to? The Lord Jesus Christ. Now, who are you? If you're born again, you're in Christ. If you're born again, you're in Christ. If you truly put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are in Him. Therefore, everything that Jesus said and did is yours. 
So when Jesus receives promises in the Psalms that were given to David and ultimately to David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, those are your promises. Because Paul writes in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 and verse 20, For as many as may be the promises of God in him, that is in the Lord Jesus, they are yea and amen. So read a promise in the Psalms. God's going to rescue you. Say, Lord, that's my promise because that's a promise that's given to my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So read the scriptures as Christian scriptures and all of the Psalms as Christian Psalms and find Jesus there. But remember, the Psalms are about, in the case of Psalms of David, David's life circumstances but ultimately point to his greater son. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, David referring to his son, the Messiah, that they point to Christ. And whatever points to Christ is yours. Because God takes the death of Jesus, suffering the penalty of sin, and in Jesus dying on the cross for your sins, that takes away the guilt of your sins. And Jesus' holy, virtuous life is put to your credit, to your account. And so everything that's there is yours. Now, with that in mind, let's turn back to the passage we just read in Isaiah uh, chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. And I pray that that introduction will make this really clear and compelling because many people stumble over some things there. That's page 1070. Isaiah 7. And what is the context of Isaiah 7? This king Ahaz, Ahaz sounds like Ahab. They were among the worst kings ever to rule over God's people. Ahab ruled in the northern kingdom of Israel. And Ahaz ruled in the southern kingdom of Judah. Now Ahaz is being threatened by two kings. The king from Damascus and the king out of Samaria. And Ahaz is being tempted to get into an alliance with a foreign empire, the Assyrian Empire. Syria and Assyria. And Samaria is the Yankee capital. Anyhow, so put it contextually. Anyhow, so Ahaz says, I don't know what to do. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Does he ask God? No, he never asks God. What does he do? He sends messengers to the king of Assyria. Come help me. And Isaiah goes to him with a warning. And he said, said, you don't need to seek some alliance with some foreign empire to help you. Trust in the Lord. Now, have you ever heard somebody that had a pious answer to sin? What do I mean by that? Look at what Ahaz said. Ahaz says, if you look back to the other page uh, in response to that, Ahaz said in verse 12, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. He said, oh, I don't want to tempt God. That's bad. You don't tempt God. I'm not going to ask for a sign. You know what he's doing? That's a pious excuse for him to sin. I don't want to know what God's will is. You ever felt that way? Have you ever been about to make a decision in life that you knew deep down in your heart was stupid and wrong? Well, I just want it. I just want it. Just like Balaam. 
Balaam had been told by God, you don't go with these people. But he disobeyed that. Point is, in life, sometimes we just want to do what's wrong. I mean, am I wrong? Do you ever want something you know is not right for you, not good for you? And you say, and somebody comes and says, well, you know, Bob, have you, have you thought about maybe this isn't the Lord's will for your life? I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. And that's the way King Ahaz is. He doesn't want to hear it. And it made Isaiah the prophet really angry. And so this is what he says in verse 13. Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And then he says he'll eat curds and honey. When he knows enough to reject the right and choose, uh, reject the wrong and choose the right, he says, but before the boy knows enough to reject the right, the, reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. What's he talking about? He's saying a virgin is going to conceive. Now, I'm going to tell you, of course, this ultimately is about the Lord Jesus Christ. But look over here at chapter 8 and verse 1. The Lord said to me, take a large scroll and write it with an ordinary pen, Maharshalal Hashbaz. And I will call in Uriah the priest and Zechariah son of Jeberechiah as reliable witnesses to me. Then I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. You know, in those days, most men uh, who were prominent men, as Isaiah was, had more than one wife. He went into the prophetess. Who's the prophetess? She was the virgin. Think about it. We'll see it clearly in a moment. The prophecy of the virgin birth is initially but not exclusively, like the Psalms of David. It's initially about the, son, the second son of Isaiah. The first one, Shiriyashav, is about, it says, the remnant will return. That's the first son that he confronted King Ahaz with. But the next son is swift to the booty, hasten to the spoil. In other words, man, bad things are about to happen. And God is going to wipe out the king of Syria, Damascus, and he's going to wipe out the king of Samaria. And you don't have to be worried about them because this baby that's going to be born to your new wife, who is a virgin, who also was a woman preacher. What? Isaiah married a woman preacher who was a virgin. Do you know that Philip, one of the deacons, had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. They preached. They were women preachers. And they were virgins. And so Isaiah married one of those kind of women. He married a virgin woman who was a prophetess, a preacher. She told, told people the truth about God. Said, well, you, know, you better watch out. God's going to do this and this and that. So he said, notice what he says. He says, then I went in verse 3 to the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, name him Maharshalal Hashbaz, which is hard to say. I practice many times to say it right. 
Before the boy knows how to say, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. Now, think about this for a moment with me, okay? I'm going to have to jump to the New Testament in a moment before we wrap this up. It's very obvious when he read it, when we read it, look over at chapter 8, verse 18. Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. So his two sons, the one by his first wife, Sher Yasuf, the remnant will return, and the child born from the virgin preacher woman, uh, Mahar Shalahashbaz, are signs and wonders to the house of Israel then. Because before the boy would be old enough to know the difference between what tastes good, honey, and what tastes not so good, except when you get old, I love buttermilk, and, and sour milk, he says, the two kings you're so worried about are going to be gone. Now, I want you to look at something else. Who is Maharshala Hashbaz? Go back over there to chapter 7 across the page. And he says this uh, in verse 14, Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, I was on the phone with my good friend yesterday, running my sermon past him for about an hour. And he told me something I'd never realized before. The name Emmanuel is a warrior name. You know how the pagans, they led their gods into battle with them? This is the army of Baal. This is the army of Chemosh. This is, is, this is the army of Molech. Well, Emmanuel is like a banner that says, God is with us in this battle. You remember when the Israelites would carry the Ark of the Covenant when they had to go to war against other nations? God's with us, Emmanuel. And so this is a warrior psalm. Now, here's how this all comes together. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And I pray that God will help me to make this clear, compelling, and not confusing at all. And uh, as we look here at uh, page 1497, Matthew chapter 1, and beginning at verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. This is to Joseph. And said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is a warrior's name. Did you know that? The name Jesus is a warrior's name. Jesus. What does it mean? It means Yahweh, the, the name of the personal God of Israel. Yahweh is a savior, a deliverer, a rescuer. In other words, in battle, I have Yahweh, the God of his people, on my side, leading, his, leading God's people in war against their enemies who otherwise would wipe them out. Call his name Jesus or Yehoshua, meaning God is the deliverer. And then go on down. 
because he will save his people from their sins. What's the worst danger in the world? Is it Vladimir Putin? Is it Adolf Hitler? Is it Mao Zedong? Is it Joe Stalin? What's the worst enemy in the world? The worst enemy in the world is your sin and my sin. That's the ultimate thing because somebody gets killed in battle. Some terrorists come blow up Texarkana with a suitcase nuclear bomb. What does that mean for you and me if we're born again? It means we're going to be with Jesus immediately. But our sin, that's the thing that will take us all the way to the pit forever. And so he is the warrior. Jesus' name is the name of a warrior. It's just like Joshua, same name in the Old Testament. He's the warrior deliverer who rescues his people from their enemies. And then notice this in verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call his name, call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Let's see if we can wrap this all up. Here's the deal. The prophecy of the virgin birth actually had some fulfillment in the life of Isaiah himself. His children... Shir Yashuv and Maharshala Hashbaz are signs and wonders to the people of God, saying on the one hand, God's with us, and a remnant is going to be saved and returned from the captivity. And on the other hand, big trouble is lying ahead, Maharshala Hashbaz, because God's judgment is coming on the northern kingdom and on Damascus, but that trouble is going to come also to us. In other words, life in this world is difficult. Life in this world involves trials and tribulations that are very difficult to bear up under. But, you know, we sang a song this morning called Jesus Saves. And in that song, there's a phrase that says, Earth shall keep her jubilee. What in the world does that mean when you sing it? Here's what it means. It means exactly this. Israel and Judah both went into captivity. Israel in the north in 722 under the Assyrian Empire. Judah beginning in 605 and then the last part, 586, when the temple is destroyed by the Babylonians. And the earth kept it's jubilee years by lying fallow for 70 years. But at the end of those 70 years, Daniel looks and he says, hey, it's about the time for this to come to an end. He's looking forward in the prophecy of chapter Isaiah, uh, Daniel chapter 9 to a great jubilee. But the people come back from Babylonian captivity and they're not rescued yet. When the last king of Judah died, there was never a restoration of the kingdom of King David. And so what does it point to? It points to a, a greater jubilee than you and I can imagine. What happened in the jubilee? Prisoners were set free. Debts were canceled. And people who had been reduced to abject poverty, who had nothing, were allowed to return to their ancestral home and claim it again and start up farming. If Israel had observed... God's law in Leviticus 26, there would have never been generational poverty. 
Generational poverty is a sign that a people rejects the basic principles of divine economics. So what is, what, is, what is Daniel's prophecy ultimately about? It's about a great jubilee that for you and me is unimaginable. You can't imagine the beauty of what is about to happen. The beauty of what is about to happen is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate son of the virgin. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to return to earth and give a deliverance Unimaginable. There was deliverance in the days of Isaiah when the, when the Assyrian Empire came in and wiped out Samaria to the north and then removed the kings out of Damascus. But I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, there is a great jubilee that's coming. It's unimaginable because you're not going to owe any money anymore and you're going to have your own piece of land that's yours and you're going to have peace and there'll never be war again. The nations will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. There's going to be world peace, not phony peace, not politicians' specious promises peace. There's going to be true global peace. And there's going to be peace on earth that is unimaginable. That's the great jubilee that the Lord Jesus died on the cross and rose again to bring. He's going to bring it in because He is Emmanuel. He is the leader of God's people in battle. What battle are we in? We're in a battle for the souls of men and women and boys and girls. We're in an awful mix today. The Western world is collapsing. But the Lord Jesus Christ has called you and you and you and me and you. He's called us to go into battle and do what? To do what we prayed for those missionaries this morning. Those missionaries serving in Russia where the man is not going to serve in the Russian army and he's going to be sentenced to five years in the Gulag Archipelago instead. Or those in the Ukraine are going to stay there even though they have American passports. They're waging war. They're being led by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They're being led by Emmanuel, God who is with us just like in the Ark of the Covenant. And earth shall keep her jubilee. And that's all because of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is foreshadowed in a type in the case of Isaiah and his two children, Shir Yasuf, the remnant will return, and Maharshala Hashbaz, hasten to the spoil, race to the booty. Those sons born to Isaiah by his first wife and by his second wife. The virgin prophetess point to a greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we pray. Lord, help us as we ponder the wonder of the prophecy of the virgin birth which had fulfillment in the days of Isaiah. 
but not exhaustive fulfillment. Because the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Thank you, Lord. We participate in the conquest of the nations today as we're willing not to shed their blood, but to have our own blood shed by those who hate you in order that we might share the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is King of kings, Lord of lords, God of gods. Lord, who is the head of all things for the sake of his church that he is still building in 2022. Lord, may we remember that we serve the Lord God of the heavenly armies who is with us till the end. In Jesus' name, amen.